one, please. the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you today that we can come together in this place. Lord, we can open up your word, that Father, we can join together around the throne of grace and today have you speak to us through your word. Pray that Lord, your word would indeed not return to you void, but Lord, would accomplish in our hearts and lives that for which you send it forth. May the Spirit of God take the Word of God and apply it to our hearts. May your Spirit take me as your servant, Father God, and empower me with your uh, words and allow me to speak that which you would have me to speak. And Lord, may today we receive from you that which you have for us, that we might leave this place having known that we've been in your presence, having known that, Lord, you've spoken to us through your Word. May, Father God, we not leave today without, Father, your Word speaking to us. Truth bless us, encourage us, Father God, whatever the need might be. Let's use your word, Father God, in our lives today. Bless that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In August 1513, a monk lectured on the book of Psalms from the seminary. He was in a man. His life was nothing but turmoil. In his studies, he came across Psalm 31. And verse 1, which says, delivered me, deliver me in thy righteousness. The passage confused him. How could God's righteousness do anything but condemn him to hell as a righteous punishment for his sins? The monk was none other than Martin Luther. And after reading that psalm, Luther kept thinking about Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, which says, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it written, the just shall live by faith. Luther went on to say, night and day I pounded until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Therefore I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway into heaven. Martin Luther was born again, and the Reformation began in his heart. On May 24, 1738, a discouraged missionary wrote that he was very unwillingly a missionary. And he went very unwillingly to, be a, uh, to a religious meeting in London. And there a miracle took place. At a quarter before nine, he wrote in his journal, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt a trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. An assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That missionary was John Wesley. The message you heard that evening was the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on Romans. And just a few months before, Wesley wrote in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? That evening in Aldersgate Street, his question was answered. And his result was the 
and the result was the great Wesleyan revival that swept England and transformed the nation. Paul's epistle to the Romans has transformed many lives and it's still transforming people's lives today. Just the way it transformed the life of Martin Luther and John Wesley. And today we're going to start a series on the book of Romans. And I trust as we embark upon the study of the book of Romans that this year the book of Romans will transform our lives as it transformed the life of Martin Luther and John Wesley and so many others throughout history. We look, I'll start to look at this book. We firstly need to have a look at a brief background to the book. In verse 1, we simply read, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated on the gospel of God. One of the questions that we need to ask at the outset is this, why did Paul write this letter to the Romans? After all, he hadn't formed the church at Rome. Indeed, he hadn't at this time even been to Rome. And also, we need to ask the question, why does it stand here as the first epistle? The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, and now the Epistles. Why does it stand here as the first epistle? The first epistle we encounter in the New Testament when actually 1 Thessalonians is the first epistle written. Well, of course, the simple answer is the Lord moved Paul to write the book. And the Holy Spirit ensured that it was placed here in the New Testament following the book of Acts. But as I pondered that this week, I, I, I started to think about the fact that I think, you know, there is something more to it. You know, the Lord wanted to ensure that we didn't miss the significance of the importance of this book. He put it here in primary place in the epistles because this book stands as a primary book as far as our understanding of the Word of God goes. The Lord wanted to make sure that you and I grasp the doctrines of the, the Word of God and it's found here in the book of Romans. I believe also the Lord wanted to make sure that the church at Rome and the fact the whole Christian church was established in the basic doctrines of the faith. You see, the book of Romans is the most significant, is the epistle with the most significant description of the great doctrines of faith in the whole of the New Testament. And it stands as a vital book in our understanding of biblical doctrine. Now, that's not to uh, diminish or to run down the rest of the New Testament. Don't get me wrong. The rest of the New Testament contains glorious truths and doctrinal truths. But as a, as a book where they're all put together, particularly about the, do, uh, the doctrine of salvation, the book of Romans is that book. And I think God put it here so that you and I would be addressed by the importance of these doctrinal truths before we embark upon anything else. Romans was written by Paul from Corinth about the year 56 AD. The letter was carried to the Christians at Rome by one of the ladies at the church of Caesarea. Her name was Phoebe. We read about her in chapter 16 and verse 1. Just point, quickly want to turn there. Chapter 16 verse 1. As I command unto you, Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is a Caesarea. And it was Phoebe who took this letter from Corinth, from Paul in Corinth, to Rome. Now imagine 
with me for a moment. You know, you and I can read and study the same inspired letter that, brought, that was brought to the church at Rome, that same letter that brought power to the church at Rome, the same letter that transformed the lives of Luther and Wesley and so many others. You and I can read that same book today and the Holy Spirit can teach you and I, just as he taught all those through this church age, the wonderful truths of the book of Romans. You and I can experience revival in our hearts, revival in our homes, revival in our church if the message of this letter grips us as it grips men of faith in centuries past. I said earlier, I trust as we study the book together that it will transform our lives as it transformed the lives of so many others. I trust that you and I will come to the book of Romans each week in prayer, asking God to transform us, to change us. That this will not just simply be words that are spoken, but that God's word will actually do something in our lives, as it's done for so many in the past. Secondly, we see the salutation of Paul. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called the apostle, separated of the gospel, which he had promised before by his prophets the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are you also called of Jesus Christ, to all that be, at Rome, be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The salutation. You know, the salutation here at the beginning of the Epistle of Romans is the longest opening salutation of all of Paul's epistles. In fact, it's probably the longest salutation of all the epistles. In fact, verses 1 through 7 in the Greek is one long sentence. So there's no breaks in this sentence seven verses just one long sentence of introduction salutation I said to david this morning when he asked me what the sermon was called i said it's the salutation part one he says how long does the salutation go for he said seven verses he said how can you say hello for seven verses i said well that's true but paul doesn't actually just say hello for seven verses he actually expands upon it but he has a long introduction and it's what a greeting this is. You know, every sentence and every phrase of the introduction contains wonderful truths that you and I cannot race over. For if we race over some of the truths in this introduction, this salutation, you and I will miss some wonderful treasures. In the only verses, Paul introduced himself to the believers at Rome, along with introducing the theme of the book, Salvation in Christ. We've, noted, we've, in, we've introduced to us the great doctrine of justification in this book. Look in chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17 because the formal theme of this book is found there. Verses 16 and 17. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, the Jew first and also the Greek. For there is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. It is written, The just shall live by faith. The formal theme of this book is about salvation. It's about the gospel of God, which Paul was not ashamed of. It's about the fact that you and I are justified by faith. 
This book is about salvation. This book tells us about the wonderful doctrine of salvation with all of its intricacies, with, with all of its wonderful truths, particularly the glorious doctrine of justification, that you and I are declared righteous by a holy God through faith in Jesus Christ. And salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you and I are justified by faith because of his grace. It's a glorious book, a glorious truth. Now, one of the reasons for such a long salutation may be that while some of the believers at Rome knew the Apostle Paul, and obviously he did know some of them because he wrote to them by name in Romans chapter 16, many of the people in Rome have never met Paul. Many of the people in Rome don't even know who Paul is. And so he greets them in this, in this uh, first chapter, in this salutation, in the way that he does, so that he might not introduce himself, but they might get to know a little bit about himself before he preaches to them in this book. In other words, he presents his credentials so that the believers at Rome might know who he is, that they might know he has the authority to write such a book. Now, in ancient days, the writer of a letter always opened with his name, which is what Paul does here. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. But you know, there were many who were named Paul in Paul's day. It was a very popular name, very common name, the name Paul. So if you're going to write a letter and say, Paul, you then have to identify yourself further, particularly those who don't know you, so they might know which Paul is writing. And Paul does that here in this salutation. In writing this long salutation of seven verses, in fact, his introductory remarks go for 17 verses, right down to verse 17. And the reason why it's a long salutation, a long introduction to this book, is because he wanted to convince them that he had the right, he had the authority to write such a letter of Romans to the Romans. And also, so they understand the vital nature of this book and it wouldn't be ignored. And we too need this book for it reveals to us the glories of our salvation. And this book, can be not, uh, this book cannot be ignored. It has some difficult passages in it. It has some difficult things to read, but we need to read the book, understand the book. The first 11 chapters are all doctrine. And then chapters 12 to 16 are the practical application of those doctrines. And you know, chapter 12 starts out, you know, therefore, brethren, therefore, based upon the doctrines of chapters 1 through 11, here is how you should live impacting the book. And thirdly, Paul presents his credentials in verses 1 through 7. In fact, he lists four credentials here in verses 1 through 7, and we're going to look just at the first one today, so don't panic. Okay, We're going to look at the very first credential. So I'm probably going to take longer to present the salutation than Paul actually took to write the salutation, okay? Because we're going to look at one of the credentials today Paul here says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. He called himself a servant of Jesus Christ. I was going to give you all four in one hit, and then as I was studying this, I found out that that was not going to be possible because there's some things we do need to discuss with regards to this matter of servant. You know, there are no less than six Greek words for the word servitude. 
And all, from all those words, Paul could have chosen any single one of those six words to express the idea of being a servant of Jesus Christ. But the Apostle Paul chose the strongest word of all the words. He chose the word doulos, a word that describes absolute servitude. Literally, the word means bond servant or bond slave. He used the word for slave. He says, I am the slave of Jesus Christ. This, is the, this was the descriptive word he chose. He could have talked about just being a servant with a master, but he chose the word bond slave. And in using this word for servant, Paul was using a word that was especially meaningful to the Romans because there was estimated some six million slaves in the Roman Empire in Paul's day. And of those six million slaves, some of them were genuinely saved. And so as he's writing to the people of the church at Rome, there probably are converted slaves sitting in the congregation, and this means an awful lot to them. They understand, if they're not slaves, they're masters, they understand the concept of bond slave. In fact, when it comes to the matter of slavery in Rome at this time, a slave was a piece of property. They were not classed as a person. They had no rights as people. They were simply pieces of property. They weren't treated very well. One of the things that they would happen to them is they were branded with a hot iron for identification. Everybody knew this was a bond slave. We imagine here the imagery that Paul's giving to these people at the church at Rome. He's saying, imagine the slave market. The slave is placed up for auction. And somebody buys him and brands him, and he becomes a bond slave to that master. And this is what Paul calls himself. He says, listen, I want you to know that Christ went to the slave market of sin. And he purchased me with his own blood. And he led me out of the slave market. And he put upon me his name. And I'm the child of God. And I am his bond slave. I belong to him. Now all that he has and all that he is, his time, his talents, his strength, even his life, its life itself, belonged to to the Lord. They no longer belong to Paul. They belong to Christ. In loving devotion, Paul has enslaved himself to Christ as his servants and now surrenders to obey his will. When Paul says, Paul, a servant, he's not just talking about a manservant, you know, Jeeves, who comes to the door when the doorbell rings and opens the door and says, uh, yes, and you tell him who you want to see him, he says, come on into the parlor and wait for a while, okay? And he's on a salary. This is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I'm just the same as any slave in Rome. I have been bought with a price. I now belong to Jesus. I'm his slave. Paul applies this term himself Numerous times. Look with me in Galatians chapter 1, please. Galatians chapter 1. 
and verse 10. For do I persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For yet if I please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Philippians 1, 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, and Titus chapter 1 and verse 1. Titus 1, 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and acknowledging the truth which is, after all, godliness. Paul, a servant of God. Paul often called himself a slave. But you know, he frequently uses the same term to express the relationship of each believer, each and every one of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior. Paul frequently uses the same term to describe our relationship to Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 22 and 23. For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, that's the word doulos, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also he that is called, being free, is Christ's servant. Same word, slave. You're bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. We're also called bond slaves in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Ephesians 6, 6 and 7. Not with eye service as men pleases, but as the servants of doulos of Christ, being, uh, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will, doing service as the Lord, not to men. You and I are described in exactly the same way as the Apostle Paul was described. Paul called himself a servant of Jesus Christ. He's a slave. He's a bond slave of Jesus Christ. And when he talks about you and I and our relationship to the Lord, he talks about the fact that you and I are the bond slaves of Christ. Why? Because you and I are bought with a price. You and I were in the slave market of sin. You and I were destined for a Christless eternity in hell. And Jesus Christ left heaven's glory and he died upon the cross of Calvary and he purchased our redemption upon the cross. He went into the slave market and he paid for our redemption and he led us out of the slave market and he set us free. And you and I, because we are a purchased possession and now bond slaves of Jesus Christ. The word involves the idea of belonging to a master and of service as a slave. And the believer belongs to Christ. You and I are his purchased possession. We're bought with a price. And because of that, he is our absolute master. You and I need to understand that you and I are bond slaves to Christ. He is our master. We are his servants. We're to do what our master requires. And far from this term of bond slave being something that, you know, uh, repulses us and the thought that we're slaves and we don't like that word, far from that being so, this word ought to be precious to us. For it not only expresses servitude to Christ, but it reminds us that servitude is based upon a purchase. Beloved, we would not be where we are today if it wasn't for Calvary. 
if it wasn't for Jesus Christ willingly submitting himself to the service of God the Father in order to die for you and to die for me, you and I would still be hell-bound sinners. We'd be in a, headed for Christ's eternity. You and I would be in dire straits right now with no hope for the future. But Jesus Christ purchased our redemption upon the cross of Calvary. He delivered you and I from the slave market of sin. He justified us. He declared us righteous. He set us free. And willingly we ought therefore to be his servants, his bond slaves, in appreciation for what he did for us. We're bond slaves because he purchased us with his blood. And if you and I remember that, we'll love being called servants. We won't mind being called a slave of Christ. If you and I remember what it was that got us to this place, if you and I would remember the shed blood, then you and I would willingly, happily, rejoicingly be called servants of God. And it will help you and I remember that we have an obligation to serve him because we are his possession. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19. What? Know ye not that, you are the, that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are his. We're bought with a price. Therefore, to glorify God in our body and in our spirit, which are God's. We're told here to glorify God, therefore, in our body. And the reason why we're to glorify God in our body and in our spirit, which are his, is because we are not our own, verse 19. You are not your own. We're bought with a price. We are his bond slaves. Therefore, we are to glorify God in our body and our spirit, which belong to him. You know, no slave in the Roman Empire could tell the master what he wanted to do. When the master said, do something, the slave obeyed. When the master told the slave to work and, uh, in the field, he went out to work in the field. When the master told him to work in the kitchen, he worked in the kitchen. Whatever the master, master required of the servant, the servant obeyed. And the Lord paints a picture for us in the Gospels, you know, where he talks about the servant being out all day. He says, when you've been out all day serving, you come home, do you expect your master to say, sit down? Here's your newspaper, basically, you know, take your ease, I'll bring you your meal. He says, no. When you come home, the master expects you to take care of him first. Then, the same is true for us serving the Lord. Our master is our, is our master. Our God is our master. He's the one to whom we must obey. We ought to glorify God in our body and our spirit because they're his. On this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and verse 9 and 20, a commentator said this. He said, between the premise 
and the conclusion is built at Calvary. Before God's therefore stands a blood-stained cross and on it hangs the Son of God. If we are God's, all that we own is his. If he owns us, he owns our property. He allows us to own it, that he may control it. If he owns a piece of ground, he owns the grass that grows in it. If God owns us, we are to glorify him with all that we own. What we are to give him is to depend not on our whims and moods, not on what we think we can spare, but on what it takes to glorify him. He is to have not what we like, but what he likes. This is the kind of ownership of property society needs to have recognized, not the public collective ownership of land and capital for which socialism is shrieking, but the divine ownership of property whose right rests on the claims of creation and redemption. We're bought with a price. And therefore, we are God's servants. We, like the Apostle Paul, are the bond slaves of Jesus Christ. And as such, you and I have one goal in life, and that is to glorify him in our lives. That's our purpose. He bought us, he saved us, so that we might glorify him. We saw that in the book of Ephesians over and over again. The reason why God saved us is that we might glorify him, that day by day people might see Christ in us, the hope of glory, that we might be walking, living, breathing testimonies to the grace of Almighty God, that people might see in us their need of the Savior, that we glorify him. To glorify God is to do him honor. It's to exalt him, it's to magnify him, it's to praise him, it's to lift him up. You and I are bought with a price. We are the bond slaves of Almighty God that you and I might indeed lift him up for all to see. That they might know the glory and the majesty of our God. It is in practice do what we're told in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You and I are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The priority of our lives as his bond slaves is to do his will. Our hearts and our souls and our minds and our bodies and our brains belong to Jesus Christ, even as that of a slave. As servants, we're to glorify him. You know, there is no liberty in this. Now, you and I know that we are free in Christ, that we have liberty in Christ, but the reality is we have liberty simply to obey him. You and I can choose to obey or choose to disobey, but really, if you and I want to be free, then we are free by doing his will, by obeying him as servants of Almighty God, surrendering to his will, because there is no freedom in this life but living in obedience to him. If you and I are living in disobedience to him, then you and I are shackled in sin. 
if you and I are living in obedience to him, then you and I are set free. Because we're doing the will of God. We are born slaves of Christ. Paul spent his whole life, all of his thoughts, all of his energies, simply to obey his Lord and Master. And so it's no wonder he begins the book of Romans by saying, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, because he simply wanted to honor and obey his Master. And so must we. If we to truly honor him, we must recognize ourselves as his servants. He's our master who we must obey. I trust as we embark upon the book of Romans, as I said earlier, as we look at these things that Paul reflects for us, that you and I will allow God's word to change us, mold us, encourage us, make us what he wants us to be. As we study together, may this first truth resonate in our hearts. We are the bond slaves of God, for we are his purchased possession. And for that, we ought to give thanks. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the book of Romans. And Lord, we did not get very far this morning. And Lord, I trust that despite the fact we only really looked at one phrase in the book that, Lord, you would challenge our hearts to its truth. We are the servants of God. Help us to live and act like it day by day. Lord, commend your word to our hearts, we pray. Challenge us by the truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Take a hymn books, we're going to turn to four hundred and eighty-seven. Four hundred and eighty-seven.